right now, most likely in the world, someone is buying and storing and selling your personal information. This may be news to you, or maybe you just don't care. But the fact remains that your personal data online is not your own. And sadly, outside of the Kim Kardashians and Justin Bieber's of the world, you're not even the one that's profiting from it. You actually have no control over who buys it, stores it, and sells it. And the only way to opt out of it is to not use the internet. And how the hell is that even possible anymore? Every time someone Googles something or likes something on Facebook, there is in fact a price to pay, and it's their privacy. Corporate storing, selling, and buying of personal information is completely legal and an unregulated billion-dollar industry because the governments of the world do the exact same thing. The NSA has created the largest mass surveillance data storage facility in world history, and no one really knows what they do with all that data. So if a person wants to use the greatest information and communication resource ever built, that being the internet, that person has to in fact agree to being spied on. Which is just so sad and ironic when you think about it. Unless you use an anonymizing network such as Tor. Tor is often associated with investigative journalists, drug dealers, hackers, and other shady businesses. But more and more regular people are using Tor in an attempt to hold on to their privacy. Over 1 million people every month are using the Tor browser just to access Facebook. So its popularity is definitely catching on. I talk with Tor advocate, computer scientist, and fellow of the Hermes Center for Transparency and Digital Human Rights, Maurice Bartle, about how Tor actually works and the importance of privacy in an ever more socially connected world. So here's my talk with Maurice Bartle. Like you can't even just go online anymore and just think that you're an anonymous person, that all these things aren't happening because they are. You're being surveilled. Every time you go online, every search query you put in, everywhere you go, whether it be the government or corporations, they're looking at you. Yeah. That's so fucking freaky, man. When did you start to find out about this stuff? <laughs> uh, I went online for the first time in 96. And I, I, I quickly like kind of was drawn into like all the, the dark hacker stuff. And there, of course, there's a high awareness of all these things happening. And yeah, since then, I've been following it. In 2004, I went to a university, to the one university in Germany that offers like a focus on, on privacy and anonymity online. It's a professor that invented uh, anonymization for phone calls in the 80s. So yeah, this this has been going on for for quite some time that people people started worrying about it. So they actually have a university in Germany that teaches you how to hack. <laughs> That's so <laughs> German. Because I live, you're in Berlin, right? Yeah, I know. I'm down yeah. in Frankfurt. Yeah, so I know I know how you guys are. So what what do I have to do, man? I, I have all these questions and stuff, but at the end of the day. <laughs> What do I got to do here? What do you have to do? I mean, I mean, I mean, it's about awareness, right? Uh, it's there, there's not even like a solution or anything. It's I, I'm, it's it's quite depressing, right? <laughs> there's there's not too much we can do. It's so um, true. <sighs> Because it's such an uphill battle. What what I do, like what I'm funded for, I'm 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 director of a of a foundation. There is a newspaper publisher in Ingolstadt called the uh, Donaukurier, 
And we try to look at these issues in, in a systematic way and, and try to like, so we, we talk with a lot of other bigger funders, like how to basically fix that problem, but it's not, it's not fixable, right? In, in, in this society, uh, you, 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 you can like build small things so uh, people can try to avoid the surveillance, but it's, I, I don't think we will win this battle in any way. It's 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 built in, into the structures of society. Remember the uh, the Rebel Alliance in uh, the first Star Wars with Luke? They had an easier time blowing up the Death Star than yeah. people like yourself and others are going to have to go against the corporate and government surveillance that's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just an image, for, like a, a very simplified model of how this world works. Oh, completely. Um, yeah. But it's so sad. Like, you're right. I mean, the corporate interests and the governments, their interests are aligned when it comes to your personal data. And that's something that really struck me. Like, the NSA is building a data facility in Utah that can hold data for 100 years. Why? You know, nobody really knows. If you think about it and you look into it, you're like, why do they need that data? And I was, I was talking to my wife before, and she's like, well, I'm not that important. I don't care. Yeah. It's it's not enough to just say, oh, I'm ignorant, I'm not important. They have a line between your identity offline and online. Not even a line, like a fucking wall that they build between your individual liberties as a person and your individual liberties online. Yeah, I, I just sent you a link to a book that really impressed me last year. Uh, it came out in 99, actually. And it looks at, at, at state as a construction that is built to model uh, a view uh, of, of like collecting data and it, it's necessary to collect all this data to make improvements, right? By deciding what properties you're looking for, um, you, you will in the future change uh, the, the structure of society to match these properties. Uh, so it's really interesting. That's fucking deep, man. <laughs> uh, let's get down to it, bro. What is Tor? <laughs> right to the heart of the issue. So the core question is, how can you build a network uh, where you can communicate anonymously? But anonymity is a, is a word that the population understands in the wrong way. It's not the basic idea is that you want to talk to me, but you don't want anyone else to see that we are talking. Uh, so it's all about the, the big metadata question. Even if you had perfect encryption, the important data and what, what everyone is interested in is who are you talking to, who are you connected to, when are you talking, how for how long, and combining that data with, with other data you have, uh, that's, that's much more interesting than going through all the like, content of the communication. So the Tor network is built to try and make it hard for an outsider um, to see who you're talking to. When the whole Snowden revelations broke and General Alexander, who was the head of the NSA at the time, had to go back in front of Congress and basically tell them that he lied because they had asked him just a few months prior to Edward Snowden's revelations that, hey, the NSA is not spying on Americans. We're not doing this. And he had to say, well, we are, but it's only with metadata. And everybody was like, oh, it's only metadata. No big deal. Yeah. But then when you look at what metadata is, you're like, wait a minute. It's a fucking huge deal. Yeah. 
yeah. it could tell you exactly how long you're talking to somebody from where you're talking to them. And there's so many things that you can infer with that. I actually went to the EFF website. There's like a really cool thing on there. The EFF is the Electronic Frontiers Foundation. And I actually, I think one of the former people is actually now in charge of tour, right? Yeah, yeah. The director of EFF is now our director, yes. So this is from the EFF.org website. They, they know you rang a phone sex service at like 3 a.m. and spoke for 18 minutes, but they don't know what you talked about. Yeah, they don't even care. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like they know you spoke with an HIV testing service, then your doctor, then you called your health insurance company in the same hour, but they don't know what you discussed. (laughs) They know you called the gynecologist, spoke for half an hour, then called the local Planned Parenthood, then called your your husband, but they don't don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much that you can gain from that. I mean, the problem is that that the, the basic function of the state is to provide security and stability. So I can't really accuse them of, of doing these things because even like if they're not bad guys, even if they're not interested in like exploiting that for whatever, I mean, they're, they're put in charge by the population to exactly do what they're doing in some sense. And even like the CIA operations of like making sure there's access to resources and, and it is, it's basically about providing stability for the U.S. Uh, population. So I do understand that a lot of citizens might actually want that to happen. But at the same time, how many of these data searches, this mass surveillance, how many terrorist attacks has it prevented? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, even, even if you're within that narrative – the NSA invented this term love int. Uh, so they have humans, they have sigins, and they even have a term for people are abusing the system and are accessing that data to follow their old uh, like girlfriends. So there will always be a level of, of abuse within, within these uh, systems. That's the thing. It's like you have 5 million people right, with top secret access, and you're trying to tell me that not one of those people is checking out on his ex-girlfriend? Yeah. That like not one of these people is like helping out his best buddy whose boss is messing with him at work. You're just leaving too many variables there. Yeah. These are not computers. They're people. This is incredible amounts of information. General Alexander say you can't find the needle without the haystack. And that's the reason why they're categorizing and putting all this data just to have it on, on file. So in case something were to happen, they can go back and look into it. But the problem is, how can you ever think to find the needle if you keep putting more hay on the haystack? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I have a minor degree in um, like uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can gather. The more data you have, it's not going to become harder to sift through it. That's an interesting like counter argument that doesn't really hold when you when you really look at the algorithms. Okay. Uh, so even Bill Binney, as a whistleblower, he's running around in these talks. Um, you, you might have seen him somewhere. He, he was on the Citizen Four documentary, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he, basically, his his story is that he devised the system that minimizes the data collection, and that he doesn't understand why they wasted so much money on like collecting all that data. And like he's a classic like systems tech person. He talks about like the machine learning algorithms and the artificial intelligence um, and he, he he knows why he doesn't do that because it, it hurts his narrative the 
kind of EFF and all the others are jumping on that argument, but but like deep down, you know that it's not actually holding uh, true. Oh, interesting. Uh, because it, in fact, the more data you have, you can actually do pretty scary analysis. So you're saying the collection of all this data in the end can possibly prevent a terrorist attack? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, coming back to what, what people are doing, like fighting for privacy, there's, there's like, you can do it on a legal basis and you can argue for laws and all these checks and balances, or you can build tax systems like what we do at Tor. Uh, where where math provides certain properties to all the users of the system. And I understand why that might be scary, uh, because you don't know, like looking into the future, you don't know whether if you, if you convert the existing telecommunications infrastructure into something that cannot be surveilled, um, I understand why even within the privacy space where people fight for privacy, uh, people actually don't want to go that far. It's, yeah, you, you, you don't know. You don't know where, what you will end up with, right? If you can't surveil the telecommunications, it might actually strengthen uh, the powerful. But it's also about the centralization of information. Yeah, yeah. And if you have access to that and other people don't, that causes a big divide. Yeah, it's about like, understanding the psychology of the people that you are trying to, to work against. So in, in a way that the, the kind of the tech community believes that the world will become a better place if we have an internet that provides this as a base property. Anonymity, privacy. Yeah. Yes. Mm. It's such a fundamental unalienable right. Your right to, to give your opinion without worrying about someone being able to stop you from giving that opinion or prosecuting you for, for that opinion or associating you with that opinion for the rest of your life. Yes, yes. The internet, it's a recorder. Anything yeah. you post on there, it's there forever. And even if you delete it and somebody collects it and they can use it later and perpetuate that, your data is not your own. Like when I joined Facebook, nobody knew, nope, the, the private policies and shit like that that are constantly updated, no, who reads that? Nobody. Yeah. We just say click, click, and we just keep going. But if you really read it and look at it, Google and Facebook and all these big corporations, they're making money off of you. It's not even even about having a choice. No, exactly. That's that's. If what you they, want to participate in society, you have to use these uh, data silos, and you have to give your data away. One of the excuses the government makes is, "Well, you don't have to use the internet." <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. preposterous. I mean, what? Like, that's like you don't have to drive a car. You, you know, you don't have to drink water. I mean, the internet is your life now. It's everything. But I mean, that's that's the question in like a free market society where like the consumer makes his choices. How these cards called? Where you get like you get uh, you, you you collect points for what you buy in shops. And then, and then we got some rewards and stuff like that. Yeah, like shopping coupons. Yeah. I've seen a shift. Like the past years, people have been slowly adopting them in Germany. Um, a lot more skeptical than in the US. But nowadays, especially if I go to mar supermarkets where a lot of poor people shop, they basically accuse you of not 
not saving money, right? It could be turned around against the population. Like the government could actually argue that, hey, you didn't use the cheapest option. Uh, you didn't participate in these commercial systems that are there to like basically understand you build a profile and, and you're not saving money. So I, I think this is also a problem that will that mostly affects the poor. They have no idea they don't that, have yeah, they don't have they a choice. Have to save five cents. And then there's also a thing called redlining. Yeah. I think this was like in 2000, Wells Fargo actually, they would only allow people to apply for mortgages from certain areas. Say you lived in a predominantly black African-American area, they would not allow you to apply for a mortgage in another zip code outside of that area. That's fucking real. Like they did that shit. And that all came from personal data that they had about you, your zip code and other things that they associated with you to build a profile. There's a company in the Philippines that they will actually look at your Facebook friends before they give you a loan. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they tried to do that in Germany with the Shufa. So we have this central commercial entity uh, that knows about when you like get a credit card, when you open a bank account, when you get a loan. It's all reported to that and they have a score on you. And they, they wanted to investigate uh, together with the university, how much more accuracy they would get if they uh, analyzed your Facebook. So even in Germany, uh, they're they're really tempted uh, to do all this. The temptation is so juicy for these big corporations, these big governments. How could they not look into it? it you, it's in almost impossible. It's a cheaper service. If they like have this box in your car and they know how fast you're driving and and that you're not crossing any red lights and all that stuff, it, it gives you cheaper service. But yeah. you could agree to that service to get a lower rate on your car thing. That's a choice. But a lot of people don't even understand that when they go to a site like dictionary.com, there are like yeah. 20 cookies that pop yeah. up. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> those cookies, they basically, they look at everything that you do online after that. Like nobody knows yeah, about that I mean, shit. There, there's also a choice there, right? Uh, yes, I agree that it's- It's, it's not, willful. Uh, but I mean, in, in, the, in the insurance context, it's interesting because it sounds like you have this choice, but what actually happens is that it's a new product that moves away from the, from the idea, from the basic idea of an insurance uh, that is like a solidarity principle, that everyone pays roughly the same if you're poor, you don't have these choices. It's not a choice. If it's saving you a hundred bucks per month, that's not a choice. And, and you're right. And and then you you brought up a good point before with like the discount cards, the supermarket or whatever that discount card is. They can sell that information to data brokers. Yeah, that's that's how they're making money. They're actually selling your information to third parties, and those third parties yeah. can then sell that information to other third parties, and so on and so on. It's just a perpetual cycle where your data. You have no control over it once it, once you use that card at a supermarket to a yeah. certain extent. Yeah. It's a completely unregulated industry and one that the government hasn't touched because it's in a hypocritical relationship with these big data companies. It's not transparent. It doesn't allow people to, to say, I want, I want you to stop that. You can't. I mean, coming back to the original question, what Tor is, Tor is actually like an experiment. It's, it's meant to develop the technology that could in the end ideally be deployed without anyone knowing across the internet. And it was originally developed by the Navy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the DARPA Navy, net. Yeah. In the US, most of the research, most of the basic research and technology is funded by the military. 
like all the DARPA money and all that stuff. The original inventor of Tor, he's still around. Um, he comes to the DEF meetings. Dingledein? Uh, no, that's uh, Dingledein is is the head of Tor in the sense that he he was originally hired by the Naval Research Laboratories um, to to build that prototype, and he continued. They spun off a company like this nonprofit company, and they're they're continuing the development. and And Roger is the head of the whole project, but. The, the, the original inception was at the Naval Research Laboratory, and that's Paul Syverson. And Paul Syverson is still doing that research at the Naval Research Laboratory. And that was in the 90s, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was in the 90s. And it's not like the Navy decided that this research was necessary. It was Paul who had the freedom within that system to basically uh, decide uh, and do that. But there was already funding in that space. So the anonymity was actually like first discussed, like technical anonymity was first discussed in the 70s. That's like USSR, James Bond fucking shit, right? <laughs> Top secret microfilm. And that's like one of those questions that's born out of the Cold War. Trying yeah, to protect yeah. communications so the Soviets or the, you know, the bad guys don't see it. And now it's, it's become a very gray area who the bad guys are now. America has taken a big hit when it comes to that because a lot of American technologies are being used by authoritative regimes to populate mass surveillance on their populations. Like look at Russia and Cisco Systems. Cisco Systems is selling DPI technology to their telecoms, which are owned by the Russian state. And and, and it's like these types of questions that are just so fundamental now. Before I go online, it's not just like I can't Google anything anymore. Even today, like I, I thought to myself when I woke up, I'm not going to Google. Anything I look for, I'm not going to Google. There's other services you could use. Like, I'm at least a... using StartPage. So my default search engine is StartPage. Okay, StartPage. All right. So I, I tried to use DuckDuckGo, which is another search uh, yeah, uh, query. Those results are like not as good as Google's, of course. They suck. Yeah. And, and StartPage is basically just like in the back end, uh, they're, they're – fetching the Google results for you. Oh, but uh, just doing it anonymously because what they'll do is they'll take your search queries, Google, and they'll actually read your emails too, you know, and that's what I'm using Gmail now. It's like, email, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's like, I mean, maybe not read like that's, that's like terminology that also the NSA knows their ways around. Targeted means they have all the data, but then they're looking for like they're querying specific data. And in the same sense, Google is of course not reading your mail. Like they have quite good protection in the sense that they have a good audit trail. Like employees at Google, if they're working on Gmail and they access some data that that is a customer data, uh, there's a pretty good audit trail uh, on on like, and they have to argue why they access that data. Oh, interesting. Because the CEO sure as hell doesn't make me feel safe when when <laughs> Schmidt says these things like, "If you have nothing to hide, you don't have to worry about it." I mean, that's like shit that like Goebbels would say. This is whole type of terminology now where it's like, it's all part of the social sphere. Everything yeah. is. Everything oh, you, you should do. Read the book uh, when Google meets uh, met WikiLeaks by Julian Assange. It's a quick read. It's it's really good. Oh, Julian Assange wrote that, huh? Yes. Yeah, yes. that poor bastard. Um, so what do you do exactly with Tor? Um, so I started like six years ago. Um, I was I was still at university. I was researching these systems, and I started to ramp up more relays for the network because the basic idea of Tor is that you don't connect directly to to your destination, but you you hop. Uh, across 
uh, servers that are spread across the globe. And someone has to operate these servers. And after a while, I ran like 80% of the, of the exit capacity. So there's the entry points into the Tor network. And then there's middle relays that just forward traffic between entry nodes and exit nodes. And the exit nodes actually execute your query in your name. So you say, I want to access google.com. This exit relay will actually access google.com and fetch that website for you. This means that they also get all the abuse complaints. When someone within the Tor network or some Tor user abuses the network um, and like say hacks your Gmail account, then you will complain. And then with bigger cases, it goes to law enforcement and then law enforcement investigates and then they knock on my door. Yeah, because you were 80% of them. So they're like, yo, Moritz, what's up, bro? Anymore. <laughs> okay, but at one time you were, right? <laughs> so they were like, yo, Moritz, what's going on with this motherfucker? Yeah, that was pre-Snowden, right? We're talking pre-Snowden. Oh, okay. Tor Network wasn't that much, like, there weren't actually that many people that ran, ran these Tor relays. It was a lot of universities. I saw an interview with Dingledine that he did it was with a German journalist. China had not yet banned Tor. A lot of countries banned Tor. Like China has, Belarus mm -hmm. recently has, because the state can't surveil the people that they yeah. can't see. It was in 2007. And I remember at the time mm -hmm. during that interview, Roger Dingledine had said that there was only 700 relays. 800 to yeah, 700. Yeah. So that so just within that amount of time from 2007 to 2016, now there's over like 7,000 relays, right? Yes. But most of these relays don't allow exiting. Most of these relays just forward traffic within the tournament or to the client. When you take the most important, like the fastest exit relays, that's roughly 400. Okay. So there's 400 boxes that basically everyone that uses Tor uh, will exit through, uh, through. And those are the areas, though, there were some issues. I know like in 2014, there was a, a, a law enforcement operation called Operation Onimus. There was like 17 different countries involved. And this was the operation that brought down the Silk Road. And Silk Road yes. was operating over the Tor network. And of course, it was the Dread Pirate Roberts, which is a fucking really badass name. You know, but the, apparently the guy's <laughs> really not that badass when you look into his case. And they thought that there was somehow governments or someone, whether it be GCHQ, whether it be the NSA or the CIA, was using middle relays. These are the people that will transfer traffic and were somehow encrypting the data at those points. They don't know. So there's a difference between you using Tor to anonymize traffic to regular, like, say, websites and using resources that are hosted within the Tor network. Of course, all the media stories are this like dark webs. Right, right, right. They love that. But most of the traffic we see is actually just to access regular internet resources. Right, that's so interesting. This, this is a minor part. It's an interesting part, the, the whole like hosting stuff anonymously. But the downside there is that it's really hard to protect your anonymity as someone providing data if you have a, a, a static identifier that people can, can address. Protect the anonymity of a client, uh, of someone just using Tor, is, is much easier than protecting something that has a static identifier. That's how apparently the government sometimes try and crack Tor, by targeting these things and forcing traffic over 
or toward ISPs that they control? So it looks like most of the attacks that we know about are not actually uh, attacking Tor, but they're attacking flaws in Firefox. They're attacking flaws in, like, you set up a web server, you host your, your darknet market, and you make mistakes in setting up that system. And then they, they poke that system and break into that system. Uh, so they're not attacking the, the communications overlay network. I, I, I think Tor did a really good job at looking at all this, like protecting that layer, the communication system. There, there's a few cases where we don't really know what they did, but it actually also might have just been vulnerabilities in, in systems, in non-Tor components. And also some of it might have been illegal because there is some kind of file that was released in November 2015 that saying that they might have done something that went around certain legalities. They don't know yet. There are certain yeah. things that are not known how they did it in regards to this Operation Onimus, but some of it might have been a little shady when yeah. it comes down to their investigation and stuff. But a lot of governments try and crack it. I mean, Russia tried to crack it and they, they couldn't break it. Yeah. <laughs> that must have felt really good. Do you, you have like a beer, you know what I mean? Like, hey, those fucking Russians, they couldn't get me. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 over the history of the project, we, we didn't really have a case where someone attacked a flaw in the Tor system. All the media reports are usually about like flaws in the browser, flaws in like server setups. Um, that's not really our responsibility. We, we, we try to provide the documentation so you can actually like use it. But like the, the big case of like some, some child porn investigation, uh, they only took down the guy because he was using an outdated version of the Tor browser. So that's usually what, what we see is, is like in the end, it comes down to user mistakes. And that is an important point because I think it was, it was Occupy within the Occupy movement. What they did was they monitored the IRC channel where the people uh, met. And then they had some, some, some suspects. They monitored the suspects. And when this guy came home, he opened his computer he uses, used a completely anonymizing whatever network, like basically probably Tor, but he popped up on IRC. What's that, IRC? Uh, on, on, on a chat network. So they correlated him coming home to, oh, there's this, this nickname that comes up on this, in this chat room. Whoa. That's enough for the, for the court to like basically sign um, a document to get, it, get him raided and, and all that. So it actually it, it's it's not that simple to protect your like protect you from surveillance if you're within a group that is targeted. Yeah, like Everstone has said, once they target you, they can have it that everything that you do from then on in, anything you go online, anything you password, anything will automatically yeah. in real time come back to an NSA agent sitting at a desk. They'll have an alert yeah. once you're targeted. Yeah. What what is that called? That's called um you've been um selected you've been selected yeah, and, yeah. and once they select, select you yeah and that that's like terrifying and shit like I, i'm always like oh god please don't select me they'll be so bored though you know i'll be like talking to my mom on skype and they'll be like oh my god this guy is <laughs> such an me. asshole you're not anymore? i gotta get some better material for the nsa agents that are listening to me but now when i read something in regards to the dark net and the deep web a lot of mm -hmm. times those two words are used synonymously, but they're two different things. Yes. 
Yeah, the, the DeepWeb is, is a term that comes out of academia. It's coined when someone researched the amount of data that wasn't accessible for search engines. So when you type in search, Google can only find, uh, only display information that Google itself can access. And there's actually a lot of content online that isn't like illegal or anything, but Google can't access it. That was a 90s paper. And they estimated that like, I think 80 or 90% of the internet is actually the deep web. Damn. And only 10% is exposed to a search engine in a way that you can find it. So that's the stuff that you can look on Google. That's the surface net. It's, it's like when you look at Facebook, Facebook is part of the deep web because it's custom content. And you can't really Google it and, and find Facebook unless you set, set it to public. And, but, but all the conversations within Facebook, all the stuff that you post on your wall for only your friends to see, that would be part of the deep web. Because it is online, it's stored online, but it's not really directly accessible to search engines. And would like banking codes and that sort of thing too be part of the yeah, deep web? Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe like a correspondence between governments? So, so that's crazy that – how many pages has Google search queried? I forget. It's like billion, <laughs> trillions of pages, and yet that's only 10% of the known internet. That's what they, what they estimated in the 90s in this, in this deep web paper. And then people confuse the term because someone later, the media invented the term dark web. And the dark web, there is basically two definitions. Uh, one definition is that the dark web is everything that happens on the internet that is shady and illegal. It doesn't necessarily have to be on, a, on an anonymizing network. All these shady platforms uh, where people sell like credit card numbers, uh, hacked accounts and all that stuff. And the other definition of the dark web is everything that happens inside the Tor network, all the hidden services, all the stuff that is, is hosted in an anonymity network. So in that second definition, not everything in the dark web is actually illegal. So there's two conflicting definitions of that term, um, and that's very confusing. Especially for like people like my mom or like me. Oh my God. But that clears up a lot of things. So the dark net is a small corner of the deep web. Yeah. yeah. Is that where hackers go? Do hackers go into the deep <laughs> web and like, you know, fuck around with shit and like steal secrets? And is that where they go? They, both of these terms are not used by anyone like any uh, uh, serious people. Deep web is a research term. Uh, it has some uh, valid uh, points. But it's not really that interesting. Like it's a statement. Yes, most of the content on the internet isn't actually accessible for search engines. The dark web, uh, that's that's like uh, nobody's really using that term. If you went to like a hacker group and you were like, hey, I'm, you know, what's up with the dark web? They'd be like, yeah, you're a fucking narc. Yes. <laughs> Don't talk to him. This technology is so over people's heads. It's very difficult to try and gauge and talk to like grandma, even the people that are prosecuting criminals. They're talking no, in court no, about, don't they, they don't even know nothing. Like FBI agents and NSA people are prosecuting people. They don't even know the terminology they're using. So, I mean, yeah. how can regular people understand it and, and, and have any grip on, with it? On the other side, I don't really believe in education. I believe in systems that have properties that you can rely on. I don't want to understand like everything that happens in my car. I want it to be simple enough that someone can like in, in five sentences tell me like the base properties of that car 
I, I, I don't think that it's a problem of citizen education or something like that. It's accessibility. Because it's just crazy. It's flaws of the system. And that's why like when I looked into Tor and I looked into what you guys are doing, because you can download a Tor browser, which allows you to surf the web anonymously. And there also is a, a Tails 2.0, which allows you to send emails anonymously. Isn't that right? Yeah. And then they also yes. have a messaging service like WhatsApp that's in beta version right now. So, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But there's still so many different things that you have to do. Yeah. to really keep your data safe. Like you can't use Windows, you can't use Google, even if you have the Tor browser. These fundamental things, I don't think the regular population will be ready to do. You know what I'm saying? No. Because you really have to fundamentally change the way that you go online yeah. to do it right, to make Tor work for you. It's not enough just to download the browser. Yeah, yeah. there's an interesting volunteer program in Germany. Um, so I'm, I'm also a part of the Chaos Computer Club. And there is a program where, where people from the Chaos Computer Club go into schools. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy how still, like, I, I went into a girls' class. It was all, like, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. They were spending, like, all their time on Snapchat and all these services. But they, they didn't know anything. They didn't know about that people are interested in, in, in creating profiles and in that they're selling that data. And that's how they make money. It was news to them. That's creepy. That's uh... that's scary. But that again, that's about education. Yeah, yeah. But but it, it, there's a limit. There's a limit to what 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 you can educate people about. There's a big issue now with sovereignty rights on the internet. Saudi Arabia and Russia and China. They what they want to do is they want to hold their piece of the internet as sovereign, as part mm -hmm. of the national state. <laughs> I mean, that, that it's idea, funny, it's just, it, but, but, it, but it, it's crazy because it's moving in that direction because yeah. of the ability yeah. of yeah. the government to surveil everything and make sure that, you know, this network stops here and this network stops here. I mean, it, it almost works against the entire fundamental philosophy that the internet is. It's a global intercommunications yeah. network that connects everywhere and everyone and everyone should have access to. When you hear that, how disheartening is that for you? Um, I'm I'm well, I'm way over that phase. Where, okay, where this, uh, <laughs> you've cried your tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I heard that, I was just like, "What?" And it's no longer like that's impossible. They'll never be able to do that. They can yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways yeah. until people are educated enough to make these decisions and say, you know what, or that the technology is accessible enough for people to use it without having to do 28 other steps. If there was some kind of bridge to the tour network for like the grandma and grandpa to use, dude, that would be it right there. I think it's a, it's a question of, of where do you get the funding from, right? And something like that would require like a massive investment like if you would there's a lot of ideas there's a lot of work being done towards it but it's so slow because only very few people actually can can like find the funding for it or, or spend their free time on it it's difficult it's difficult but the scary thing is who has the money the state yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the companies and the big companies but where do their interests lie yeah i mean the companies it's not even the, like basically the company's fault because the company is a, is a legal setup that is not meant to do anything else outside of its like original business vision so yes and no uh, the government however is set up to do these things for population 
I don't know. I don't know where the balance is. I don't know where how to fix this. I, I don't see a way anymore. Yeah, it's, it's it's a constant like battle for basic privacy rights or like human rights and all that stuff. I, I don't think you can build like a, a model or, or like a system, a society that is, is protected against this. If you have these people like these, those girls who don't know where their data is going, they grow up in a society that they get used to surveillance. Yes. How will that affect the way people think? I mean, it's such a huge question. Yeah, yeah. It becomes more and more difficult to have a minority view on things. You're afraid to voice it. And, and then it doesn't even build up. It's just an idea. But you don't voice that idea because it's too crazy. Because you don't see that reflected around you. Like from the psychology point of view, it's, it's really scary. Once you realize that everything you put in Google is recorded... You know, your favorite porn sites, if you like MILF porn, they know. <laughs> like anything that you would figure it's just you and your computer, it's not. If you, if you look at it from like a system analysis point of view, what happens is the surveillance ensures a stability, uh, but it creates a static uh, implementation of, of the rules of society. It becomes harder to change these rules and adapt to new circumstances. It's like the marijuana legalization in the U.S. Imagine that surveillance would be so perfect that no matter that, that there were like there was no like people wouldn't be able to violate that law. How would you actually overcome that law toward legalization? Right. I mean, there, there would be probably no legalization if it was for the Internet. Yeah. The passage of ideas, the finding out of like, oh, there's a group in California that's doing this in like the early 2000s yes. and Colorado and all these things. I mean, the internet probably brought about the government change in the United States in marijuana laws faster than anywhere else in the world. I mean, think about yeah. that. You're talking about a country that for like 30 to 40 years had fought a war on drugs. They considered the fight against drugs and addiction a war. They put a general in charge <laughs> to make sure that our kids were safe. But within like 10 years, everything changed because of the internet. Yeah, but with better surveillance, you, you can't have that anymore. And I think we'll stop right there. Jim's Vault is available on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Sprecher, and on Stitcher. If you like this, please share with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. And also a comment and a rating on iTunes. For Jim from Jim's Felt, I greatly appreciate you guys for listening. Thanks again. Peace. Asparagus. I'm sailing you, my peace.